The following message is a part of the teaching ministry of Grace Bible Church of Fairburn, Georgia, also on the web at gracebible.faith. That is gracebible.faith. Okay, if you've closed your Bibles, turn back to Romans 8 as well as Galatians, but those will be the two places where we are this morning. Okay, we're going to continue our exposition of the first of Paul's letters written to the churches of southern Turkey just after Paul's first missionary journey. This is our third week, uh, continuing to make progress through the book. Uh, Two weeks ago, we showed Paul really going deep in his explanation of the claims that he had made. And then last week, we did a jet tour. I don't know if we've ever done 26 verses in one morning, but we did a jet tour through the end of Galatians 1 and most of Galatians 2 up to verse 14, since it was mostly a recounting of history that we had already covered. And so we could go a little more quickly. David will be back in the saddle next week, uh, preaching through Philippians again. So we have one more week uh, this week to make progress, further progress through Galatians before we set it on the shelf for a little while and bring it back in the future. And it would make a lot of sense if we finished chapter 2 today, verses 15 through 21. And then we could have things wrapped up nice and tidy, waiting for our return to Galatians 3 when we come back. But I decided against that. Uh, 15 to 21 of chapter 2 is Paul's declaration of the gospel that he preached. He's already talked about uh, there is only one gospel. It's not the gospel that uh, those who were troubling the Galatians had brought uh, and He's explained, sort of hinted at the gospel in his introduction, but he's going to lay it out in 15 to 21. And I want to spend more than two weeks on that section and more than one week, excuse me, more than one week on that section and more than one week preparing. So instead of going on to 15 to 21, as much as that would make sense, I'd like to spend today uh, discussing one specific view of Galatians that I haven't told you about yet that has incredible implications if it's true. We're going to get to that in just a second, uh, but let's review really quickly uh, what we know. So again, chapter 1, if you've got your Bibles open, the first five verses was Paul's salutation, which just means who he was writing to and who it was from. And we saw that there were two things clearly on his mind, the gospel and the fact that he was not from man. He was sent from God. And then we said verses 6 to 9 were the occasion, which is just a fancy word that means why he wrote the letter. And he made some very bold claims in that occasion. There's only one gospel. It's the gospel they taught, Paul and his companions. And those that were newly teaching the Galatians were purposefully distorting the gospel, which would lead to their damnation and the Galatians' damnation should they follow what they were teaching. In fact, the severity was such that even angels would fall prey should they try to teach or follow such teaching. And again, those claims, Paul's claims, they were bold and maybe could have been seen as out of touch uh, given the reality of thousands of years. Again, the main issue was circumcision and whether believers needed to be circumcised and follow the law of Moses. And for thousands of years, That's the way that it was. And so maybe Paul's opponents were saying some of their own bold counterclaims. And we said, who are you, Paul, to change that? After thousands of years, that was God-given instruction in the law. Who are you, Paul, to change it? And so in verses 10 to 13, he does some explaining, a lot of explaining. Remember we said four 
fours or four becauses in a row. Every sentence, because this, because this, he goes deep in his explanation. He's a servant of Christ, pleasing God, not man. His message is divine. In fact, he didn't get it from man. He wasn't taught it. He received it from a revelation. And then he gives 26 verses to prove that that's the case. Show me the evidence, Paul. I mean, there are others who claim divine source for their message. He gives 26 messages of his history to demonstrate that he did not receive it from man. He wasn't taught it. He wasn't given it by man. He was re- it was revealed to him by Christ, which shows that his message is divine, which shows that he is a servant of Christ, pleasing God, which shows that his claims need to be followed. We'll review that history, those 26 verses, really quickly. I know this is probably the fourth time we've done it, but repetition is the mother of learning. And... Uh, Sometimes history can be hard to get in your mind and not lose. And yet, history is extremely important, as we said in this case. Paul's claims rise or fall based on whether this history is true. This is the first slide that we have shown before. I'm not going to go through that again. This is some key points in Acts. Rather, I'm going to go through this slide to review the history, which is Paul's recounting of it in those 26 verses in Galatians. You remember uh, Acts 15 was the Jerusalem Council, which happened after Paul wrote Galatians. I just wanted to call out as I uh, introduce this history that in that case, the teachers who caused them to have to meet for the Jerusalem Council, they actually, Acts 15 says, went to Antioch and were teaching that people needed to be circumcised. And that's where Paul was then appointed to go down and deal with it and have an official council in Jerusalem, which we didn't talk last week. We talked about how some people view Galatians 2 as the Jerusalem council. That's another reason to show that it's not because he went up by appointment to deal with that issue. Whereas in Galatians 2, he says he went up by revelation. But let's let's go through that history quickly. But I I wanted to uh, share that as we started. So you recall, Paul has he breaks it up into six parts, three in Jerusalem, three in Syria alternating. Jerusalem, Syria, Jerusalem, Syria, Jerusalem, Syria. Jerusalem first, he's clearly not learning the gospel from man. He's not taught it. He's killing or imprisoning everybody he can that's a part of the way. And then as he's on his way to do that, the second incident on the way to Syria, to Damascus, he is revealed Christ. Christ is revealed in him. He recognizes Christ as the Lord, the Son of God, and he believes. Ananias helps him with that. He's baptized. He regains his sight. And what does he do? Does he go to Jerusalem to go learn about this gospel that he now realizes is the truth? No, right? He goes into Arabia. And for three years, he's in Arabia. We don't know of what he's doing, but what is he not doing? He's not being taught the gospel by man. He's continuing to preach. He makes his way back to Syria. In Syria, the king of Arabia wants to have his head, so they Send him out through a basket in the wall. He goes to Jerusalem. That's the third part. What does he do when he's in Jerusalem? Does he go and sit at the feet of the apostles? No, he's there for two weeks. And he swears to God. I swear before God. I was there two weeks. I, was, I, I saw Peter. I saw James. I saw nobody else. And he's run out of town. He's run out of town back up to Syria. And then he spends 10 years north of Syria in his hometown of Tarsus in southern Turkey. And what does Paul say about that time? What do the churches of Judea say? I don't know who he is. I don't, I don't even know that I could pick him out. But I praise God that he's now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. Again, unknown, though, to 
to the churches of Judea. All this has happened. We're now going on 14 years, and Paul has not sat at the feet of the apostles. He's not been taught his gospel from man. But then you'll recall, during that time, Peter goes. He receives his vision. He speaks to Cornelius, and the Gentiles receive the Holy Spirit. And Peter's called to task. What's going on? What were you doing with those Gentiles? Peter explains himself, and they say, Oh, well, I guess the, the gospel has gone to the Gentiles. God has not made a distinction. They've received the Spirit just like us. And that message goes up to Syria, and believers in Antioch, a key city in Syria, start believing. And they're converted, and there's a large group of Gentiles now believing. So what do the apostles do from Jerusalem? They send Barnabas. Barnabas, go and, and help those new believers. Barnabas says, wow, there's a lot of believers up here. I'm going to get some help. He goes a little further north, brings Paul down, and Paul's there with Barnabas, ministering to those Gentiles in Antioch. Then some prophets come up from Jerusalem, and they say, hey, we have a prophecy. There's going to be a famine in Judea. So because of that revelation, Paul and Barnabas decide they'll bring a gift to Jerusalem. And that's the fifth item here. They come down to Jerusalem to bring that gift to the churches of Judea. And while Paul is there, he takes the opportunity to present before them the gospel that he's been teaching now for 14 years for fear that he might be running in vain. But do they add anything to him? No, they don't add anything to him. On the contrary, they confirm everything that he's been teaching. And they just say, we just ask you, you go to the Gentiles with that gospel, that's fine, just remember the poor. And Paul says, that's, ex that's why I came here. I'm happy to do that. And he goes away. They add nothing to him. Again, his gospel is still the one that he received from God that he has not been taught. He goes back up to Antioch. Eventually, Peter comes back up to Antioch. Peter's put in jail. Peter eventually gets out of jail. He goes north towards Caesarea. And then what's not in Acts, but is in Paul, he makes his way north of Caesarea in, which is a town in Israel, into Syria. And while he's in Syria, he begins fellowshipping with Gentiles, eating with Gentiles, uh, living as it were like a Gentile, not making a distinction. Then some of these false brothers come up from Jerusalem and Peter, out of fear, backs away. And what does Paul do? Does he say, well, that's the leader of the church. That was Jesus' premier apostle. I need to at least follow him. No, he confronts him with language exactly like, similar to how Jesus had confronted Paul. Paul confronts Peter. It's very clear through those 26 verses that Paul did not receive his gospel from man. He was not taught it from man. He received it from a revelation of Christ, which means that Paul gospel was not an invention of man, it was divine. And Paul was thus Christ's servant, pleasing God and not man, and therefore his claims, bold though they may be, are correct. There is only one gospel. It is the gospel Paul and his companions taught. Those newly teaching the Galatians were distorting the gospel, and it would lead to the eternal damnation of those teaching as well as the Galatians if they follow it. And it was such so severe that even angels would fall if they got involved. That's really fast talking. I don't like to talk that fast normally, but we've done that now for five, six weeks. Hopefully all of that is very familiar to everyone such that maybe you could get up here and do it. And maybe I will ask you tonight if you don't ask questions <laughs> for one of you to do that. But now what are we going to do? We're not moving forward to 2, 15 to 21, which would make a lot of sense. But today, as I said, I want to introduce you to a view of Galatians that is slightly different than what I've shared, but has massive implications 
if it's true. Now remember the main point I shared with you many times, including today, the question of Galatians is, should spirit-filled, believing Gentiles be circumcised and follow the law of Moses? And the answer is no, a resounding no. They should not, they must not. But there is a view of Galatians, not a new one, but one that is certainly growing in popularity right now, that says that's close, but it's not precise. They would say the book is not about whether spirit-filled, believing Gentiles should be circumcised and follow the law of Moses in general, Rather, it's about Gentiles who are considering a legalistic use of the law. Not in general following the law, but following it to be able to boast before God and merit their salvation. That's what Paul is writing about, this view says. They're seeking circumcision. They're seeking to follow the dietary laws in order to be saved, in order to be justified. And they must not because Paul is very clear. Justification, which again, we said it's a fancy word that just means being declared innocent. It's like the start of your Christian life. You're declared innocent, you're a believer, and you're justified. You go on growing, eventually you're going to be glorified, but justification is being saved. And this view says Paul is is arguing against those who would say that you need to follow the dietary laws, you need to be circumcised, you need to follow the law of Moses so that you can be saved. In fact, you Gentiles... Praise God that, you know, you, you, you've listened, but until you're circumcised, you're not justified. You're not saved. This view would further say that once you understand that, that that's not the case, once Paul clears that up and says that's not how you're saved, you're saved by faith apart from it, which we would all agree to, the, the difference that makes it slightly different but has massive implications is they would say once you understand that, though, now you do need to start following the law. The law is God-given. The law is for your sanctification. The law is to govern you as a believer. It's wrong for you to think that you should be circumcised, that you should pursue the law of Moses to win your standing before God. And Paul argues vehemently against that. But, this view would say, Paul is not saying that you shouldn't follow the law. The law is good and holy and righteous and ought to be followed just out of obedience, not out of a desire to gain merit. So Gentiles should follow the law, including circumcision, but they should do it because they are saved, not in order to be saved. And you could see how this would have a tremendous impact in our lives if it were true. We wouldn't need to fear that we're not in Christ because we're not circumcised or we don't follow the law of Moses. We agree But we would, over time, need, as part of our sanctification, to begin following it. Now, let me start by saying this view has some good things about it. It has merit. The context or occasion of the book and the issues at hand that Paul's discussing are absolutely, they are indeed, whether or not the works of the law should contribute to our justification or not. They are absolutely right that that is the case. There are too many examples to cite. I already postponed uh, 2, 15 to 21, but that whole section is about justification. Paul says it explicitly, again, numerous times, too many to recount. I'll just give one very clear one. 
in chapter 5, which we said is the key chapter, the, the beginning of it is the, are the key verses of Galatians, and where we said this is where Paul's really warning them, hey, if you accept circumcision, you're going to fall from grace. Christ will be of no value to you. He says it explicitly, verse 4 in chapter 5, you've been severed from Christ, you who are seeking to be justified by law. So again, this view has merit. It's clearly the question at hand. Even Acts 15, which we just reviewed, is very clearly, again, without dispute, about whether or not you need to follow the law in order to be saved. It's the very question that the false brothers bring up. Acts 15.1, some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. He's saying to these Gentiles, Paul and them, they're in Antioch. There's all these Gentile believers, and these people come and say, that's great. I'm happy for y'all. I'm glad you're listening. But the reality is you are not saved if you're not circumcised. You're not justified. And Peter says it explicitly. Verse 11 of 15, we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus. So again, the view has merit. And they would say, Paul is going after in this letter only legalism. Seeking or even legalism can be, we all define that differently sometimes. Paul is going after seeking merit from works like circumcision and law keeping in order to be saved. That's the question this view would say. And again, very valid. And there are a wide range of people that hold this. And they say this is what Galatians teaches. It does not teach that the Gentiles shouldn't be circumcised and follow the Moses, which is what I've been saying. It teaches that they shouldn't do it in order to be saved. Indeed, they would say they must be circumcised and follow the law of Moses as believers once they realize they're already saved and they are obeying out of love and not for merit. Is that what Galatians teaches? And my answer is no, is not what Galatians teaches. But it is harder to refute that than it is to refute that you should follow the law to be saved. That's, is, I don't even know anyone hardly who says that anymore. It's so clear <laughs> that you are not justified by being circumcised or follow the law. It's all over again. That's what was a question. This is a little bit of a harder question because that is the focus of the Jerusalem Council and Paul's writing. It reminds me of when we talked about the deity of Christ. And remember, we started by talking about Marcionism. And we said, that's such a softball. It's slow pitch. It's so easy. And no one believes it anymore as a result. And then we talked about adoptionism. And we said, that's a little harder. I don't know anybody, like any official bodies that believe it, but, and it's not that hard. Although I, I think I mentioned in a sermon recently, I had a conversation on Twitter with a guy that was denying the preexistence of Christ at all. Not eternal preexistence, just his preexistence. And it's you know, it's crazy. That's so, it's easy to see that Christ had an existence before he was born. But then we talked about Arianism, and we said, that's false. It's, a, it's wrong, but it's a little harder. It's harder to say, I now need to prove Jesus's eternal preexistence, which can be proven, but it's harder. And this reminds me of that. It's a little harder to show that Paul wasn't saying, all I'm talking about is whether or not you need to follow the law to be justified. And I'm saying, no, Paul's saying Gentiles shouldn't follow the law at all. How are we going to demonstrate that? Because it's important that we get to that, not later, not when we're in chapter six, but now, 
you know, before we start the letter. That's a big difference. In fact, it has such massive implications. We need to start now because we got to start acting different <laughs> if it's true. So how do we how do we do that? And again, there are a variety of people. There's the preeminent commentary on Romans takes this view in many places. And then there's Hebrew Israelites. There's Hebrew roots movements. There's Seventh-day Adventists. There's a number of people. And again, it's growing in popularity, at least uh, from my perspective. How do we address this as clearly as possible in the short time that we have together? So my goal will be to do two things. First, I'm going to fast forward in Galatians to the clearest demonstration, in my opinion, that this is not the case. And again, I think a lot of them are not clear and are hard to see, but I think there is a clear demonstration of it in Galatians, and we're going to read that and let that be our foundation for continuing to believe what I've shared with you about the main point of this book, which is that Gentile, spirit-filled believers should not follow the law of Moses for justification or sanctification. We want to go forward to that. And then second, we'll look at the incident and the history that we just described of Titus not being compelled to be circumcised. And we'll go out of the book of Galatians to show that as a second example, which I hope will clarify this for you. First, the clearest demonstration. Turn to Galatians 5. And look at verse 18. This is not a defense of how one is justified. This is not uh, a one-time event, whether you are saved or not. This is a principle. This is a present tense principle, truism. If you are led by the Spirit, and we read in Romans 8, Frank read for us today, if, you're le- if, you, if you have the Spirit, you're a Christian. If you don't have the Spirit, you don't belong to Christ. So if you're led by the Spirit, if you're a believer... You are not under the law. Again, not in a context of justification. It would be a lot harder for someone in Hebrew roots or in Hebrew Israelitism or Seventh-day Adventist or, or whatever. It would be a lot harder at this point to say, hey, that's talking about justification. Now, many of these others, it's hard. They're talking, Acts 15. It's in a context of are you justified? This is not in that context. This is a principle. If you are led by the Spirit, You are not under the law. At first blush, that sure sounds like spirit-led believers are not governed by the law. So, how is this explained? How would someone who says, no, spirit-led believers aren't justified by the law, but they should follow the law. How do they understand this verse? There are two explanations. The most common is that under the law here doesn't mean under its authority or governed by it. It means under its penalty. If you, if you, they would say, if you live by the Spirit, if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the penalty of the law. You will not be judged by the law. So those trying to be justified by the law and thus not having the Spirit, those who would be unbelievers, are under the law in the sense that they are under its curse. But if you are a Spirit-filled believer, you are not under the law. But is that what under the law means? Does it mean under the penalty 
of the law. We'll look back one verse, I mean one chapter. The best way to find out what Paul means by under the law is to look at Paul, hopefully in the same letter, and look one chapter before in chapter 4, verse 21. He says, tell me you who want to be under law. What did they want? What were they considering? They were considering being circumcised. They were considering following the the feast days and the dietary laws. They wanted to be under the law. Did they want to be under its penalty? Was that their goal? No, they wanted to be governed by it. At least in 421, it does not mean under its penalty. It means governed by it. How about the same chapter, verse 4? When the fullness of time came, God sent forth Jesus, sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Now, Jesus absolutely at a point in life, bore our sins. He bore the curse on the tree. This says, however, he was born under the law. What does that mean? Does that mean he was born under the curse? Born under the penalty of the law? No, it doesn't, does it? It means he was born under the law as a Jewish man, Jewish son, who grew up under the law. Hebrews 9.22, you don't need to turn there, and it's outside of Paul or at least outside of Galatians, it says under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. What does he mean? He means that as it pertains to the dominion of the law and what it governs, everything is purified with blood. So clearly under the law means under its authority, under its rule, governed by it. Just like we'd say he had 10 legions under his command. It's under his command. What do we mean? Well, he's ruling over it. He's telling those legions where to go, what to do. And Galatians itself, if you go one more chapter back in chapter 3, if Paul wants to say what it means to be under the penalty or under the curse, he says it. 3 verse 10. For as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse. So Paul knows how to say that someone's under a curse or under a penalty. And lastly, you'll remember Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9, in a verse we looked at when we talked about the circumcision of Timothy, that he wasn't under the law, but to those who were under the law, he acted as though he were under the law. And again, under the law there is very clear what it means. He's not saying, I'm acting like I'm cursed so that I can go and help those who are cursed even though I'm not cursed. I suppose that could be true, but that's not what he's saying, right? The more likely thing he's saying there that I think all of us recognize is, hey, I'm not governed by these laws as a believer in Christ, but I will act as though I were governed by these laws for those who are governed by them as unbelievers to help win those who are under the law. So I don't think that, you know, again, as strong as a position as it is, as as good of a position as it focuses on the fact that Galatians and Acts 15 are about justification, as good as it is, I don't think it explains Galatians 5.18, which says, if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. But there is a second common explanation, which is that in 518, Paul is not talking about the law of Moses, but rather the law of sin and death. Now, this view, this explanation has some merit too. Again, these are not um, slow-pitch softball answers. These are, these are challenging things. They would say, and If you read through Paul, he uses law, we're going to look at this in just a second, in many different ways in the same context sometimes. 
So this is a valid question. In fact, I hope you still have your finger in Romans 8, which I don't, so if you do, you're doing better than me. But if you still have your finger in Romans 8, I want you to see that Romans 7, starting at verse 23, so the end of the chapter, all the way to Romans 8, 7, which is where Frank read to for us, you'll see if you just glance through that, it looks an awful lot like Galatians 5. You, you remember Galatians 5? We only looked at verse 18, which said, if you're spirit-led, you're not under the law. But you guys know what Galatians 5 is, right? You don't follow the desires of the flesh. You're, you, you produce the fruit of the spirit, right? It, you're, you're led by the spirit, not by the flesh. Well, Romans, end of 7, Romans, and Romans 8, the beginning, are all about the spirit and flesh. It is a very similar context. Let's quickly look through what, how Paul uses law in that context. And you'll see, we'll get a little nervous for a second because he's going to talk about the law of sin and death an awful lot. Let's start with verse 21 of chapter 7. And, and before I read that, just to make sure I'm clear, in Romans 5.18, Paul says, if you're spirit-led, you're not under the law. And what I'm believing, what I'm saying, is that means you're not under the law of Moses. And so these groups would say, that's where you're wrong, Matt. It's because you're not under the law of sin and death if you're led by the Spirit. Let's look at Romans 7, starting in verse 21. I find then the principle, which is the word in Greek. What word do you think it is? Law. <laughs> I find then the law. So there's Paul using law as just a rule, like, uh, you know, gravity is a law. You know, it's just a principle. It's a thing. I find the, the law, the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wishes to do good. But I see a different law. Oh, excuse me, let me do 22. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man. The law of God is the Mosaic law. It's throughout Romans. If he says it's the law of God, he's talking about the law that God gave at Mount Sinai through Moses. The law, he concurs in his inner man with the law of God, with the law of Moses. But I see a different law. Well, I'm going to explain what that law is in just a second. I see a different law in the members of my body waging war against the law of my mind. I'm going to explain what that law is in just a second. And making me a prisoner of the law of sin. There's the law of sin, the law of sin and death, which is in my members. The law of sin is in his members. So go back to the beginning of that verse when he says he sees a different law in the members of his body. What law is that? It's the law of sin. It's the law that's in his members. So first law in 23 is a law of sin. It's in his members. The last law in 23 is a law of sin, law of sin and death. What's the middle law, the law of his mind? Well, just quickly breeze down to 25, verse 25, and he says, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God. So when he says a law in my mind, it's, it's him joyfully concurring with the law of Moses. But he has a different law. He has a law of sin that he sees in his body, in his members, not in his mind, but in his hands and in his body. And he, he's told, you know, he, he, he tends to sin. He doesn't do what he wants to do, right? So here he is in this context going between the law of sin and the law of God. And again, in verse 25, when he says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. On the one hand, with my mind, I'm serving the law of God. That's the Mosaic law. But on the other, with my flesh, the law of sin the rule of sin, having dominion and causing our members to you know, enslave us and do things we don't want to do. He goes on in, verse, in chapter 8. There's no, for, no condemnation. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. 
All right, we know what that second law is. It's the law of sin and death. It's in his members. He wants to be set free from. What is the law of the spirit of life? That's not the Mosaic law, right? Is, it, is he saying the, the Mosaic law set him free? No, that's not what he's saying. In fact, you can see that because next verse 3, he says, for what the law could not do, that's the Mosaic law. The Mosaic law couldn't do that. What the law couldn't do, weak as it was through the flesh, nothing wrong with the law, but his flesh made it weak, God did. So whatever the law of the spirit of life is that did this, it says God did it. So the law of spirit of life is God doing something through his spirit, right? And then if we go on in, in chapter 3, I know this is really deep and really hard and we haven't been in Romans. Here's the point. I'm almost ready to give you the point. Look at verse 3. For what the law could not do, that's the law of Moses, in order that the requirement of the law, verse 4, the requirement of the law, that's the Mosaic law with all its demands, verse 5, for those according to the flesh set their mind on the things of flesh, excuse me, I've got to go to 7, because the mindset on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not subject itself, subject itself to the law of God. So, Starting in three, he's dropped everything. He's not talking about the law of sin. He's not talking about the law of the spirit of life. He's not talking, and he just says the law of God. He's able to talk about the Mosaic law just with that term. So here's the point of all that deep swimming. When there are multiple laws being discussed, Paul uses full terms, right? He talks about the law in his mind or the law of sin and death or the, the law of the spirit of life, right? Because otherwise it'd be really confusing. When he's trying to make the distinction between these laws, he uses the full terms to try to help explain himself. Once he's done and he's declared that the law of spirit of life has set him free, and he's just now going to talk about how he's not under the law, or he doesn't, in verses 8, verses 3 through 7, he just speaks of the law of God. And by that he means the Mosaic law. Now what do we see in Galatians 5, if we look at the context of the law there, is it clearly the law of sin and death, as this view would have us believe? Well, where do we see law in Galatians 5? We see it first in verse 3. I testify again to every man who receives circumcision, he is under obligation to keep the whole law. What law is that? The Mosaic law, the one that has circumcision as a starting point and has many other laws after that. Verse 4. You have been severed from Christ. You are seeking to be justified by law. What law were they seeking to be justified by? The, the law of Moses. Very clear. He doesn't even have to explain himself because he's not brought up any other law. This is the law that's in question. Right? How about verse 14? He doesn't talk about the law after that. He does talk about the spirit versus flesh throughout that. But in verse 14, the whole law is fulfilled in one word in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. What law is that? The law of Moses. Absolutely. The law of Moses. And look in chapter 6, verse 2. Now he wants to introduce a new law. Bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. Now, if he was going to talk about the law of Christ there and he just said the law, it'd be really confusing because what would we think? The Mosaic law. So he's got, to, he's got to spell it out. He's got to say, I'm talking about the law of Christ here. So when we get to 18 of chapter 5 and he says, if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law how in the world could we get that he's talking about the law of sin and death there? He's not introduced it to the Galatians one time. It's not in the context. I grant with them, I grant with these views, that these two contexts are very similar. I, I, I totally agree with that. But when Paul says, if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law without any qualification. The law to the reader is the law 
of Moses. It is not the law of sin and death. In fact, under the law, as I, we showed in Galatians 4, it's used five times in Galatians and eight times elsewhere. And proponents of this view that I'm talking about will consistently say it means under the law of sin and death. It's very special pleading because that is a very rare phrase. It's used nowhere outside of Romans 7 and 8 in those few verses. Nowhere in the entire New Testament. So to say that every time you read under the law, especially when we saw Paul makes himself under the law, all those that we read, Hebrews, under the law, everything under the law means under the law of Moses. And maybe this seems like, man, alive, Matt, calm down. But again, this makes a big deal. If this is, if we, if, if this is true, then we need to start eating different. We need to start observing dates and we need to start doing other things. In 5.18 to me, while there are some hard ones that are un, not as clear because they are in the context of justification, 5.18 to me is the clearest teaching in Galatians that spirit-filled Gentile believers are not under the rule of the Mosaic law, not for justification, not for sanctification. It is a principle. It is not a statement about justification. Now, I'm going to go fast through this next one because I've already spent a lot of time, but just to provide a little more confidence, if you look back at Galatians 2, when he says, I brought Titus with me to Jerusalem on that famine visit, I would not have him circumcised even though they wanted me to. I was not, I did not let him circumcised so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. The explanation here by given, of, given by proponents of this view is that it was wrong. It would be wrong for Titus to be circumcised under the auspices of him not being saved until he was circumcised. And we, Paul kicked against that and we would kick against that. We all agree with that. But this view would say, and does say, once back in Antioch and growing in his faith, Titus would need to be circumcised and start following the law. Again, we have to go outside of Galatians, I think, to, to show that that is just not true. It's not what Paul taught, but let's go to 1 Corinthians 7, just briefly. And again, I'm going to do this fast because I know we've been here a long time already. This, 1 Corinthians 7, is not about the law. It's about marriage for the most part. First 16 verses about marriage with a key principle being, because Paul is talking about whether people should marry and if they're married, whether they should come together and just, you know, things were different and they were trying to figure that out. And Paul's principle was, look, if you're unmarried, stay unmarried. If you're married, stay married. Now, if you're unmarried and you, you, you really can't, you know, you want to be married so bad, you can't like, be married. That's, you're not going to sin. That's fine. But that doesn't change my principle. You should stay the way you are. If you're married, don't seek to get divorced. Don't separate. If you're unmarried, don't worry about it. Just serve the Lord. That's his general rule. You see that in verse 17. Only as the Lord, this is 1 Corinthians 7, 17, only as the Lord has assigned to each one, as God has called each, in this manner let him walk. And that's what I direct all the churches, he says. Well, however the Lord's called you, serve him that way. He's applied that to marriage. But now he's going to apply it to other things. It's like, let me show you this. I teach this in all the churches. It's not just about marriage. Look, were you already circumcised when you were called? Don't seek to be uncircumcised. Don't seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Have, were you called in uncircumcision? Don't be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing. And uncircumcision is nothing. What matters is keeping the commandments of God. Now, that's a fascinating subject. First of all, circumcision is nothing. Hello, Paul. Have you not read thousands of years of history? Like This was a big deal. Circumcision is not, no, Paul says circumcision is nothing. It's nothing. 
What matters is keeping the commandments of God, which in itself is amazing. Circumcision was a commandment of God. It was commanded in Exodus 12 of a non-Israelite living along among the nation. Exodus 12, 48. If you're a non-Israelite living among the nation and you want to celebrate the feast, you need to be circumcised. And if you're an Israelite, if you're born, Leviticus 12, 3, you better be circumcised. Abraham, hey, if, if any of your kids aren't circumcised, they're gone. They're cut off. This was a big deal. And Paul says that is not a big deal anymore. And it's not even classified as a commandment of God to Paul. He'll say the same thing in Galatians 6. Circumcision counts for nothing. What matters is a new creation. We're almost ready to close. In summary, we agree with the idea that spirit-filled Gentile believers should not follow the law to be saved. And we agree that's the context that was driving the letter to Galatians. And that's the context that was driving the Jerusalem Council. False brothers, non-believers, cursed people, according to Paul, coming to the Gentile believers in Antioch and saying, y'all aren't saved. Here's how I know. You don't follow the law of Moses and you're not circumcised. So miracles, whatnot, speaking in tongues, it doesn't matter. You're not saved. We agree. That was the context. And we agree with this view that it's wrong. They don't have to be circumcised to be saved. But we do not agree that spirit-filled Gentile believers must, once they accept their identity in Christ, start following the law in order to be sanctified. Paul was not arguing against just a legalistic use of the law, even though that was primarily what he was arguing for. He was saying that we are not under the law of Moses at all, since we are led by the Spirit. He says that explicitly in Galatians 5.18, if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. And they didn't have to be circumcised either by being compelled to show they're believers, to show they're saved, or out of obedience to the law of Moses as a saved person. The issue was coming up because false brethren were teaching they weren't saved at all, and the apostles rightly pointed to them having the Spirit as proof that they were saved. And Paul in Galatians does spend a lot of time convincing them they don't need to seek the Mosaic law to be saved, but in doing that, the conclusion is they don't have to do it at all not just that they don't have to do it to be saved. Here's how I want to close. I want us, I hope you still have your finger in Romans 8, and I hope you still have your finger in Galatians 5, because I think this contrast will help you to see and maybe put a nail in the coffin of this, what I would view as false teaching. Galatians 5.18 is in the context of flesh for spirit and states that spirit-filled believers are not under the law. Romans 8 is in context of flesh versus spirit. And it also, we didn't see this earlier, but if you look in Romans 8, it also speaks of being under the law. But the contrast between the two is amazing. First, the Greek word for under and under the law is hupo. Hupo. Now look at Romans 8, 7. You don't see the word under, but that word be subject or submit, I don't know what your translation has, is hupo Tasso. Tasso just means to put or to place. Hupotasso means to put or place yourself under. So we have here a question of being under the law. In Galatians, what was it? It was the spirit-led believer is not under the law. What is it in Romans? You might expect the opposite. It's not the opposite. In Romans, it is a fleshly unbeliever who is not under the law. 
wait a second. Logic is hurting me here for a second. It's the spirit-led believer is not under the law, but you're telling me the fleshly person is not under the law, doesn't put themselves under the law. Well, think about the difference. Think about the distinction, and it'll be uh, insightful, I think. A fleshly unbeliever is not said to be not under the law. It says the fleshly unbeliever does not put themselves under the law of Moses. They can't. They can't submit themselves to the law of Moses. They're not able to be under it. What does that mean? It means they can't obey it. You can't follow it. You're going you're gonna to break it. If you're in the flesh, you're going to break the law. You're going to be judged by it. You can't submit to it. You can't be under it because you will fail. You will break it. You will not be able to be under the law, to put yourself under the law. That's what he says in Romans. In Galatians, he says, the spirit-led believer isn't under the law. Well, maybe that begs the question, can a spirit-led believer fulfill the law? Yes, and he says that in Galatians. He can. How does he fulfill it? By putting himself under it? No, through, almost, through, no, I'm, somebody may have said, I may just can't hear. All those are close, but that's not what Paul says. Look in Galatians 5.14. Y'all will beat me there. Through love. How do spirit-filled believers fill the law? Through love. Through love. Through loving one another. So we fulfill the law by faith working itself out through love. That's what's very striking. The, the, spirit, the, uh, the fleshly unbeliever cannot be under the law of God. They're not able to. The spirit-led believer isn't under the law of God, yet they can fulfill the demands of the law through love. That's the end. The massive implication of the legalism idea of the fact that Paul's just writing to say that you don't pursue the law to be saved, but you do need to pursue it to be sanctified, it does not apply. We do not need to start adjusting how we eat or becoming circumcised or observing certain days. Rather, through the Spirit, we love one another. The idea that the Spirit-filled believers must follow the law of Moses is either a diversion, dangerous, or damnable. If someone says people have to be circumcised and follow the Mosaic law in order to be saved, that is a damnable heresy. If someone says people have to be circumcised and follow the Mosaic law, not to be saved, but because it's binding on believers, that is dangerous. That is dangerous teaching. It's not far from the first, because how could a person consistently transgress the law and truly be a believer. You're almost saying the same thing. I'm not saying they are, and I don't want to parse that. I don't know if I can right now. I certainly ran out of time before I did. But it's at least dangerous. And finally, if someone says people might want to follow the Mosaic laws as believers, maybe to better understand our Hebrew roots. Okay, that's fine, I suppose. But it's possibly a diversion from the main thing. And what's the main thing? Love. Love. Loving each other, bearing each other's burdens. That's the main thing. So it may be a diversion, if not dangerous or damnable. I cannot stress enough, however, that this diversion, this danger, this damnable heresy is alive and well and very compelling in some of its forms, in my opinion. I may just be more gullible than you all, 
but I feel I find it compelling at sometimes, and you, you know you have to see that it's not true. You got to work hard to see it's not true. But on the surface, there are things that feel very good about it, but it's around and it feels compelling, and so that's why we spent the time this morning. The truth is, people are saved by faith in Jesus alone, and when they are saved, they receive the Spirit of God who dwells in them, and the Spirit produces fruit, and the core of that fruit is love, and they are not under the law, and indeed, as Galatians 5 will say, there is no law against them. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your spirit. I thank you that uh, we've said before about how amazing it is that someone can be an heir of God. A human can be an heir of God. It would be akin to making a pet a part of your, your will, to leaving everything to your sheep or to your chicken. It's, a, it's astounding that a div- the divine creator of the world would make us humans, co-heirs with your son, with Christ, the divine son of God, that we would be co-heirs with him and that we would have the spirit of Christ. We would have the divine nature living in us through the spirit. Granted, we still struggle. We still uh, fail. And yet you have given us a deposit. You've given us a seal that is the very Son of God's Spirit living in us, the very Spirit that rose Jesus from the dead living in us. And in that, we have the ability to overcome. We have the ability to overcome sin and the, uh, the, even the law of sin and death, the law in our members. We can overcome. We can trust you. We can believe. We can be sanctified. And we can love each other. We can love and thus fulfill the law of Christ. We also recognize that your law was glorious, God, that it was a special privilege of Israel and that it is good and it is holy and we still want to honor it, Father. But we thank you that for the freedom we have in Christ. We thank you for the great gifts you've given us and we ask you to help us walk worthy of those and to love, to be use our freedom not as an opportunity to pursue our own desires and wants and lusts and jealousies, but to serve each other. In Jesus' name, amen.